everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Um, so uh, we are, uh, yes, continuing uh, along the uh, Chosen series, and today we are actually looking in the uh, fifth episode of season one, when Jesus performs his first public miracle, which is recorded in only one of the Gospels, and that is the Gospel of John. Now, we should continue and read the Gospel of Luke, but uh, keep in mind that today's story is actually recorded only in John. Uh, Now, the Chosen series is not uh, exactly chronological, but just uh, as a way of context, it's a little over a month after Jesus was baptized. He returns from the wilderness, and by now he has gathered about half of his uh, disciples. Now, uh, when we read the Gospel of John, uh, we don't see as many miracles as we see in the other Gospels. John is very selective when it comes to recording the miracles of Jesus. He writes at the end of his gospel that Jesus did many signs in the sight, in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, he says, that are not written in his account. But he says, the miracles that I selected to write about, and there are about seven in his book, are meant to help you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing to have life in his name. The signs in themselves have importance, John says, but to where they point is more important. And that is so we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. G. Campbell Morgan said that every miracle that Jesus performed was a miracle of instruction. In other words, every healing that Jesus did, every exorcism, calming of the sea, feeding of of the uh, 5,000, raising people from the dead, every miracle that Jesus performed was more than a miracle, was a miracle with a message, was a parable of instruction, a window into the spiritual world meant to show us something about the heart of God. Jesus didn't do signs and wonders for sensationalism to satisfy people's curiosity and their desire to maybe see trickeries. You know, like kids, they like to go to the circus so they can see all these um, magic and tricks. That's not why Jesus performed miracles. People often came to Jesus and said, do something miraculous. Show us a sign, do miracles for us so we might believe. And what we see in scripture is that Jesus never does miracles under those conditions, on demand, at someone's command. But when Jesus performs a miracle, when he intervenes into our material world and changes the natural course of events, he does it because he's moved with compassion. And most people who were around him, they saw his miracles. Not all, but most of them knew that there was no other explanation except that the finger of God was in that miracle. 
And in the book of John, these miracles are called signs. They're called signs. Now, what are signs? Signs are arrows that point us to a destination. The signs are not the final destination. To what they point, that is the final destination. Let's say that you need urgent medical care and, and you drive in a hurry to Chester County Hospital or you are in an ambulance. And as you get closer to the hospital, you start to see signs that say to Chester County Hospital. When you see the sign, you don't stop the car or you don't stop the ambulance next to the sign and say, I've arrived. That's all I needed was that sign. No, but when you see the sign, you keep going to where the sign is pointing. Miracles are the same way. They are called signs because they are indicators that point us like the signs on a highway to a greater truth. And that is Jesus Christ and believing in him. And that's what John says. He says that Jesus did many miracles in the sight of his disciples. But um, the ones that he writes about, he, he carefully selected to help us believe that Jesus was the son of God. Miracles <clears throat> should always point us to Jesus. They are not the final objective. Why? Because we know that miracles, we know that all the people Jesus healed eventually got sick again and died. The blind eyes Jesus opened one day closed forever. The paralyzed legs that he strengthened one day ceased to walk again. The physical result is not the primary purpose of a miracle, John says. We look beyond the physical miracles to what they are supposed to teach us about the heart of God and his intentions for us. Now, when we talk about miracles, the question that begs to be answered is, are miracles, are the supernatural gifts of healing mentioned in scripture still operating today? And it's, it's really a rhetorical question because we know that that is true, but should we believe in miracles? This, this is a question that Christianity asks. And with the risk of simplifying it, we can say that the issue of miracles and gifts of the Spirit. One camp that says supernatural gifts, signs and miracles have ceased once the canon was completed. And canon means the collection of all the books of the Bible. Once no other writings were added to the Bible, they say miracles ended. And this camp bases its position on different texts from scripture. When? When the perfect comes. And they say that the perfect means the word of God. So when the canon, when the Bible was closed, when the perfect came, we no longer need to, the gift of prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues, words of knowledge and so on. Because the word of God is sufficient. 
And they say, look at the history of the church. Miracles were done during the time of the apostles. Just the shadow of Peter was sufficient to pass over sick people. And they were healed. Paul's sweaty handkerchiefs were sent hundreds of miles away. And they healed people who touched them. And all that has ended, they say. And history confirms our position because they don't happen anymore today. Those exceptional gifts of miracles, they say, were in operation and they were necessary at the beginning of the church for the Christian faith to take off. But they are not necessary today. These are called the cessationists, people who believe that the miracles have ceased. But the other evangelical camp disagrees, and there is a movement known as power evangelism. And what they say is that in order for our witness to be effective, it needs to always be accompanied by supernatural power, power manifested in the form of miracles and supernatural signs. So when we share the gospel with unbelievers, we don't do apologetics, they say. You don't try to defend the faith in an intellectual way and try to prove and convince people that, that God exists. But what you need, they say, is the demonstration of the power of God, which no one can deny, to do miracles, to heal the sick, raise the dead, and do all the other things that we see written on the pages of, of New Testament. And then people will believe, and they will come to Jesus. And they say history proves that miracles happened even after the canon was closed for 2,000 years. There's evidence that healing in the name of Jesus took place and miracles took place and by the power of God. Maybe not with the same intensity as in the beginning or as frequently as in the first century, but they happened. So to say that supernatural gifts and miracles ended is to go against the reality, against human experience, against history. And to further prove their position, they say that the Bible talks about an early rain and a latter rain. The early rain was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, when supernatural manifestations of the power of God took place. But the latter rain is closer to the end times. And God is planning and is preparing an outpouring of the Holy Spirit as never before. And at this latter rain, rain, there will be a reawakening and there will be reactivation of these spiritual gifts in the church when miraculous gifts will be amplified among Christians. And it is very possible, they say, that we live in that generation in those last days. These are the non-cessationists. Now, a problem with those in this camp is that they often believe that signs have to happen and have to follow the preaching of the gospel. Otherwise, the witness is not a success. And that is something that we will touch on in just a minute. Is there a balance? Is there a balance? But these are the two general camps and where they stand on this issue of miracles and supernatural gifts. Now, I believe that most of us here, if not all of us, uh, are open to miracles. I've preached in churches where that was not the case. And it's very hard. It's very hard to preach Jesus um, to a room of cessationists. 
But we believe in the manifestation of the power of God in the world, amen? And, and we've seen it and we've witnessed it even today. I believe the Holy Spirit did not strip the church of these valuable resources and gifts once the scripture was closed. On the contrary, I believe that if the Holy Spirit did anything, he enlarged the spectrum of spiritual gifts because today we have gifts we didn't have 2,000 years ago. We have gifts of broadcasting, for instance. People who have this gift of speaking on the radio and television and, and interviewing, which was not a gift 2,000 years ago because these mediums did not exist. I believe God expanded the spectrum of gifts to meet the needs of the church today. He didn't reduce the gifts because how are we to carry on the mission of God 2,000 years later with less than what the early church had? I believe the Holy Spirit is adding new gifts to the church so we can serve better. And if God in his grace chooses to send the latter rain in our generation with special gifts for the church, so that we can take by assault the kingdom of darkness and prepare the way for the second coming of Jesus, what we should all say is, bring it on, Lord. Send the latter rain. We pray for miracles. We believe in them. We believe in them. But here is what needs to be emphasized. Our attitude should be, even if God does not choose to let us see miracles, our faith does not depend on miracles. We share the gospel even if miracles do not follow. We do that in obedience. We pray for the sick in obedience and in faith. And if God chooses to perform a miracle, we are grateful and we praise him. But if he doesn't, we still believe. Our attitude should be like, like those three young men in the book of Daniel before the king threw them into the fiery furnace. We believe God can save us from this fire, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow our knee to you, O king. We worship God. This is how our faith has to be, a faith that welcomes miracles, that prays for miracles, that expects miracles, but does not fall apart if miracles do not take place. All right, so let's look at our clip where Jesus is actually about to perform his first public miracle, according to John. Thomas? Talk to me. Just watch out for the frogs this time. <laughs> oh, sons of Jonah! We were just looking for you. They're dancing to the song of Miriam, and we thought you wouldn't want to miss it. Of course. Let's the three of us show them how it's done, huh? I don't think that's such a good idea. Why? Andrew has four left feet. Four? <laughs> Why four? When he tries to dance, he looks like a donkey walking on hot coals. <laughs> oh, Andrew, do you deny it? I've never seen a donkey walking on hot coals. Actually, that would be a terrible thing to behold. My son. Ah, Andrew, you see, even my own mother will join us in the Song of Miriam. They've run out of wine. But it's only the first day. Yes, and it's all gone. Not a drop left. 
Why are you telling me this? We can't let the celebration end like this. And Etcher's family humiliated. Boys, uh, go join the others. I'll be right there. Mm. Fill these jars with water. I'm not sure you heard her clearly, but we've run out of wine, not water. These are similar in size to your amphorae. The prudent marks, yes. Equally filled all the way to the brim. You're a very responsible person, aren't you? We are in a crisis, and I was led to understand you have a solution. Do you know why jars for purification rites are made of stone? What? You heard me. Because the stone is pure. Less likely to stain or break. That can't be made unclean. Yes. Fill these jars with water all the way to the brim. Why? You heard him. Start drawing water, quickly. Tell anyone you find to stop what they're doing and help. From the directions you have provided, I see no logical solution to the problem. It's going to be like that sometimes, Thomas. and go home and watch the rest and see Jesus changing water into wine. Because no man, no person performed so many signs and wonders like Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus came on the scene of Israel and began to reveal who he was and serve people as the anointed one of God, miracles followed him one after another. But we saw that we rob ourselves when we look at the miracles of Jesus and we only see the physical part. Jesus performed miracles, not just to prove that he was powerful, but to teach us something about the kingdom of God. And what this miracle at the wedding of Cana teaches us is that the fundamental characteristic of the kingdom of God which came among us is joy. It's joy. 
Because a wedding is the most joyous event in our lives. And if there is an image that captures true joy in our lives, and if there is, there is a, an, an image that, that puts joy in our heart, is this image of a bride and a groom at their wedding. And Jesus takes his disciples to what was supposed to be the pinnacle of joy on earth, the happiest event that humans can organize on this earth. And there he chooses to inaugurate or to start his public ministry. And if you watched the earlier episodes of Chosen, you saw that Jesus acquired some of John the Baptist's disciples. And John the Baptist's ministry was entirely different than Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. He, he ate locusts and he ate wild honey. And he taught his disciples to do the same and to, and to be the same way, rigid and harsh with their bodies and austere. But what we see here is that Jesus' method of discipling or discipleship is entirely different. And the first place where Jesus takes his disciples is a wedding to the biggest party in town and feeds them not locusts and wild honey, but feeds them lamb chops. I mean, can you imagine John the Baptist's disciples being used to eating grasshoppers and now they're eating filet mignon? What kind of discipleship is this? What kind of master you are? But from the beginning, the story of the wedding of Cana is showing us the side of Jesus as one who loves to have a good time. Not as one who is a joy killer, who slaps our wrists every time we have a little bit of fun. God doesn't find pleasure in seeing us with our heads down and our faces drawn. But God's pleasure is to see us full of joy, a joy that wells up in us for no reason sometimes. Have you ever had that happen to you? I don't know why. I'm just happy. It's because we belong to him. He lives in us. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth at a wedding because a wedding represents the time in our life when we are the happiest. And joy is the mark of the kingdom of God. Often people think that if you follow Jesus, that if you become a Christian, fun is over. Often people think that when you come to Jesus, there are only rules. There are only regulations, only fasting and austerity and loneliness and silence and self-flagellation. And if you excel in the self-denial, after your death, maybe, we will declare you a saint. Nothing further from the truth. Jesus starts his ministry in the middle of a celebration. Jesus loved to have a good time. Only that the celebration of the wedding of Cana is cut short when the wine, which is the symbol of joy, ends. For thousands of years, before there was television, people used to tell stories. And the story that was told the most, and adults and children could not get enough of, 
was usually a fairy tale. A love story about a young man, handsome, courageous, passionate about a young maiden, having to face obstacles, fight villains, evil stepmothers, fire-breathing dragons to get to his, to his beloved. And after all those trials, almost all fairy tales ended the same way. The young man reunites with his love, who becomes his bride, and the wedding feast begins. And in our Romanian folklore, the stories always ended with the words, and they feasted and feasted. And if they didn't die, very dramatic, they're still feasting today. We're obviously obsessed with food. <laughs> so these are stories that I grew up with. And maybe some of you did too. And how beautiful these stories are. They all have an happy ending. With a wedding that did not last a night. Or only a few hours because you had to leave the restaurant. But a wedding that lasted for days and even weeks. Why? Why happy endings? Why do we like happy endings? Because there is something in the depths of each one of us that tells us this is how it's supposed to end. Our dream for our life is always to be happy, to be fulfilled and at peace. Why? Because that's how we were in the Garden of Eden when God created us. And there is inside each one of us a hunger for happiness because in the deepest recesses of our conscience, there is still a vague memory of the paradise that we lost. We yearned for joy because we were created for joy. We think about happy endings because these thoughts were first conceived in the heart and in the mind of God for us. This was God's original plan for us. And it's still God's original plan for his children. A happy ending. Read the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. After the great tribulation, after pain and difficulties and suffering, the bridegroom, Jesus, will descend on clouds of glory on a white horse with great power after he defeated all his enemies, all the villains, after he fought the great dragon, which is Satan, and defeated all the forces of darkness, he comes for his bride. The church for us. And the wedding feast begins. The marriage supper of the Lamb. That will last not only three days or three weeks, but it will last an eternity. And that's not a fairy tale. That is the future that is awaiting for each one of us who believe. The story of the wedding of Cana shows us that the kingdom of God is fundamentally characterized by joy, by happy endings. It started with joy because we were made for joy. But we were made for joy that is lasting, that doesn't run out, and that only Jesus can give. The Bible says that in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. 
and at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Not temporary, not temporary, forevermore. Joy is the defining characteristic of God, and that's what Jesus came to bring us. You know, Satan is an imitator. Satan cannot produce anything original. But in this life, he will try to hand us different cups of joy. And he tells us here, this thing will bring you happiness. This person will fulfill you. This job will give you value. This amount of money will make you happy. Now spend your life running after it. The father of all lies will use any method possible, any elixir to masquerade as happiness to deceive us and derail us, only that in the end, we never reach true happiness because Satan cannot honor what he promises. The Bible calls those the temporary pleasures of sin. But what God gives is a joy, a pleasure that is everlasting. In the midst of the greatest human celebration, Joy can end. The wine runs out. Disappointment sets in because the earthly joys are always short-lived. But the joy that Jesus brings is permanent, is abundant, is good. Jesus says, I came that you may have life and life more abundantly. Did you know that throughout history, God commanded his people to have special days of rejoicing, special feasts that he said, I want you to come to these feasts prepared to rejoice at these feasts. Joy is that important to God. Rejoicing is a commandment that God frequently gives us in scripture, which most of us neglect. We neglect to rejoice and you know, it's understandable. Because in this life, it's easy to lose our joy. People disappoint us. Family, loved ones move away or get sick. We hear bad news. So many things can steal our joy. But you know, when God calls us to rejoice always, he has a good reason. You know what that reason is? God calls us to rejoice because the biggest problem of our life has been resolved. And that is the problem of our sin. Our sins are forgiven and our salvation is secure for eternity. And that should fill us with joy even when we go through the valley of the shadow of death. Because you know when tragedy strikes, what is it that we say? Did he know Jesus? Did Jesus know him? Yeah, it's the only thing that matters. The joy that comes from Jesus does not hinge upon our circumstances. When bad things happen, when the world is anxious and paralyzed with fear and without hope, we are called to exude a different attitude because the biggest debt that we owed 
It's paid. It's settled. The biggest problem in your life is resolved, which means that everything else is secondary. And if God can handle my eternal salvation, he can handle anything. Amen? Joy is the fruit of the Spirit, a quality of heaven that God put in all of us because joy is a fundamental trait of God. So let me ask you a question. Have you lost your joy? Have you lost your joy? I believe Jesus wants to restore our joy today. I remember last year, a lot of us lost our bearings in our joy last year. But I remember in the middle of everything that was going on, full-time ministry, difficulties, my father died, I couldn't travel overseas. And I sat with the Lord and I said, what is it? I'm so unhappy. And I knew that what happened in my heart, I lost my joy, the joy of the Lord, I lost it. We can lose our joy, joy for, any, for many reasons, but joy can be restored. Joy can be restored. It is not God's will for us to be depressed, to be discouraged. He wants to fill us with joy, a joy that's not dependent upon circumstances and what's happening around us, but a joy that is a mark that we were filled with the Holy Spirit of God and that Spirit of God and that joy helps us rise above what's happening around us. It's a joy that is not human, supernatural. I believe some of us, Jesus wants to restore in us the joy of our salvation today. And because I don't know all of you, I have to ask that if you don't know Jesus, if your salvation is not secure, if your eternity is not secure, I believe Jesus wants to do the biggest miracle in your life. He wants to bring salvation to your soul, to your heart, to your mind, to your relationships, salvation to your home to replace your anxiety, to replace your hopelessness with joy that is unspeakable. So will you ask him today to come into your heart and do that? And when you do that, the Bible says that there is rejoicing in heaven when one sinner comes to God there will be rejoicing in heaven for you and we will rejoice with you. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.